Hi, I'm Elaine. Welcome to the Rhizome Podcast, a storytelling project from Roots for Change, exploring issues impacting youth in our communities. In this episode, Ruth and Wen chatted with Ganyat Sadiq, the president and co-founder of the Black Inclusion Association. So just to start us off, um, Ganyat, would you like to introduce yourself and what would you want people to know about you? My name is Ganyat Sadiq. Uh, my pronouns are she, her. I'm an activist based in Alberta and I'm just excited to be here today. We're super excited to have you, Ganyat. We're conducting this episode in context to the overt rise in Islamophobic and anti-Black violence, especially for Black hijabi Muslim women in Alberta. And we want to note like how exhausting and traumatic this may be. And we really thank you for coming on today to share about yourself and these deep-rooted issues. Um, so I'll leave it to you to maybe guide us in where you want people go from in a certain angle when addressing these atrocities. Um, I think right now, people know, especially in Alberta, that there has been an increase in the rise of Islamophobic attacks, especially against Black Muslim women. But I think a lot of the fear that I feel right now comes from the fact that people do know, but there doesn't seem to be like enough people mad about this. Um, so these attacks have been happening since 2020, and we're in almost ending 2021 now. And there has been almost nothing done by the government. And I think in the recent Islamophobia summit that they had a couple of weeks ago, um, the solution that they kind of proposed was, you know, getting pepper spray to kind of ward off any attacks that you may face. And I think it's not really addressing the issue and it's just kind of fostering more violence in a already violent situation, not really um, combating the trauma that Black Muslim women are going through, not addressing like the lack of safety that they feel and, you know, just not addressing the Muslim community in general. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's kind of like a band-aid solution, isn't it? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think um, the way I kind of described it was like, there is the gun epidemic in America, right? So right now, can Canadian solution to the rise in Islamophobic attacks is like telling everyone to wear bulletproof vests instead of like actually you know, having stricter gun laws, right? So you're not addressing the problem. You're kind of just having these adaptive solutions that are not systemically rooted. Absolutely. And I guess like to expand on like the very last question that one asked, for citizens, not government, but citizens, uh, you and me, people around, people around Alberta, how would you want us to, you know, start addressing these atrocities and what's going on? Like, what do you think is the first step? Um, I think the first step is kind of recognizing the fact that Black Muslim women are being targeted. You know, there's already a sense of like, um, Muslim women are always, especially those that are covering, are quite vulnerable in society today. But then there's like this specific demographic that is being targeted than more than um, others, right? So you know, there has been conversations with people when I'm like, okay, there's a rise, rise in like attacks against Black Muslim women, but then there, people are like, oh, there's a rise in Islamophobia in general. And I'm like, yes, that is true. But you need to realize that there are people that are being um, affected by this more than others. And like it plays a major role in how the issue can be addressed. So if I'm 
fighting with you to be like black Muslim women need to be supported. They need to be protected. I'm not saying other Muslim women don't need to be supported. I people need to recognize that like you need to put a shift in focus where the shift in focus is being placed on the people that are being attacked, right? So I think people need to acknowledge where the issue lies, first of all. And then also when you do find out that, um, you know, oh, there is this big issue, your solution should not be, oh, well, I can't really do anything. All I can do is kind of be like, oh, this sucks. Or, But in all, almost all the instances of these Muslim women being attacked, the story has always said, or the person that has been attacked has always said that there were people around. There was people around not doing anything. So obviously you never want to be the person to put yourself in danger when you see a dangerous situation. But if these are people like seeing someone being attacked and then just your instinct is just to look and kind of keep walking, not even to call someone to intervene or that kind of stuff, right? It's just people need to address kind of this apathy where you're like, oh, I can't really do anything or um, whatever I do is just going to make the situation worse. I think it's just kind of having a sense of responsibility to protect Muslim women, especially Black Muslim women. Um, And I think it's hard for us to have like a cohesive action if I'm out here fighting with other Muslims to be (laughs) saying that Black Muslim women are being attacked more, right? So, but that like, that's rooted in like the racism that's also present within the Islamic community and everything. So we're kind of wasting our energy or Black Muslim women are always exhausting their energy, just kind of being like, I'm here, I'm ex- I exist. And if I'm spending all of my time being like, acknowledge me, acknowledge this situation, acknowledge the intersections of my identity that are colliding in such a violent way or that are being perceived in such a violent way, then how can we expect a bigger solution from the government? If even within our own community, like that does not exist, that like support is not even there, right? Absolutely. How can we fight a war when we're fighting on both fronts? Exactly. Exactly. Um, I guess I'm just tying this into the next question. So from your own experience as a young Black Muslim woman here, um, what would you see accountability look like in response to these hate crimes? Um, I think accountability as a society, first of all, is like people need to understand what Islam is, because I feel like a lot of the attacks are coming from a place of fear. And there is a lot of fear mongering um, in our media that we consume almost every day and like the tv shows that you watch like you know with like how terrorists are perceived how muslim women are perceived as oppressed right there's all these little things that like if you're not looking for in your media you're you're just going to see it as normal so i have literally talked to so many people that have seen me my first day at a new high school someone asked me if i was oppressed because genuinely their only understanding of Muslim women is that, oh, they have to wear the hijab. Oh, they're so oppressed. Oh, they can't do anything. So first of all, education, understanding what it means to be Muslim, kind of understanding what our religion stands for, if that will kind of alleviate fear for other people. And I think also kind of recognizing this crazy double standard where nuns can fully clothe themselves. And if a Muslim woman is to do the same, it's seen as oppression. And where does that stem from? Like, who told you that? (laughs) And I feel like people need to sit and address that. So accountability is not in the sense that you're making promises and sticking to them. It's like, 
first of all, you need to go back. You need to educate yourself as to, okay, why do I think this way about Muslims? Why do I think this way? And why am I like imposing these stereotypes on Muslim women or on Muslims in general? Oh, uh, absolutely. I think the first step to any problem is education because the story ought eventually become who we are. And because also with education, we can equip others to defend Muslims. Mm-hmm. Because like black Muslim women especially must be like just so stretched thin because everyone's expecting them to be like the ambassadors of Islam, the ambassadors of black Muslims. Hmm. And like, I feel like when we say educate yourself, it's not like a daunting thing. Where I'm not saying like go and go read the entire Quran and try to understand every single thing. But it's like, why is it that if a Muslim is like, I don't drink alcohol, it's like this big shock. But if someone is like, oh, I don't drink alcohol, not based on my religion, but just based on like a personal preference, it's like lauded as like this big goal, this big achievement. Or if like, if it's someone, for example, who's like, I was an alcoholic and now I don't drink alcohol, that's like kind of seen as like supported and as it should be, you know, be supported and stuff like that. But if a Muslim says that, oh, I don't drink alcohol because of my faith, they're like, your faith is so restrictive. And it's like, when did this happen? When did all these things kind of get coined and lumped together as oppression, right? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I love how you're touching upon like this double standard we have. And I think that like really exposes white supremacy and like Orientalism at its Mm -hmm. core. Um, So I just really loved how you articulated that and like gave those examples. Um, Thank you. So to move on to the next question, we've seen you've been doing like really amazing work in the community relating to black excellence education through social media and your work with food and equity and we were wondering if there are any teachings from this work or big takeaways that you might want to share with folks listening honestly i think when people kind of say the work i do i find that like a lot of it is just in like my lived experience and I started a lot of my activism back when the Christchurch attack actually happened, I think in March of 2019. So that was when I was like, I kind of need to try and do my part to educate people. Um, So from doing that work in 2019 to in 2020, everyone kind of having this huge awakening of, wow, like this is where society is at. That was pretty interesting for me. And, you know, Honestly, I don't think I've ever felt so exhausted as I did in like May 2020 and like the following months, just in the sense that I, I've had people like ask me basically like, is this politically correct and that kind of stuff before everything happened, right? But then when it was happening, like in the moment when everyone was kind of conscious about what they posted and not necessarily for the most genuine reasonings that was very hard to kind of navigate I feel like as it is for any activist to be like when does my like having to constantly educate people kind of take a step back and taking the next step so that's something that I'm like realizing that like even for me when I'm doing my activism I'm constantly learning I feel like people need to not be afraid of like not necessarily always knowing everything, but trying to continuously educate yourself. If you're talking to like scholars, I bet you there's still always something that they can always learn. So when um, I'm kind of always advocating, I'm always trying to advocate from my lived experience because what people cannot deny is other people's experiences, right? You can say false facts or 
what was Trump saying? Like alternative facts or whatever, fake news, fake <laughs> news, right? So you can claim things like fake news, but what you cannot claim as fake is people's experiences. So if a Muslim person is coming to you telling you like they don't feel safe, that is not something that you can argue. That is not something up for contention, you know? Like you can't pick and choose what is right or wrong, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So I feel like there's a lot of people who are like, oh yeah, I definitely support like Black Lives Matter, but, but I'm like, no, like end it right there. If you support Black Lives Matter, then you should see how all these systemic issues, you can't just be like, I support Black Lives Matter, but I feel like these protests are too much. But I feel like this person deserved this, but I feel like that person, because they were out at this time, deserved this, right? So every time that like, you're kind of saying, but, 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 like, you're kind of justifying these injustices. And I saw that a lot when, um, Micaiah Bryant was shot when everyone was like, well, she had a knife. Well, she had a knife. And I was like, okay, this is like a young girl. And you're telling me that the police had no other solution than to shoot her. You see full grown adult white men charging at these same officers and they make it out alive. Right. So with that, when you're saying, but to all these issues, people are not realizing the double standard in it of itself. And I think it's just a journey of like continuously learning, recognizing where you are privileged, because even me as a black Muslim woman, I'm privileged enough to have not been one of the people that was a I'm privileged enough to not be experiencing food inequity. I'm privileged enough to know I can go to school. I can like get a good education, right? So there's just because I'm a black Muslim woman doesn't mean my life is abysmal. My life is awesome. Honestly, <laughs> my life is only hard based on what people perceive. I mean, based on like the stereotypes that people come up to me and say, based on how people choose to react towards elements of my identity. Right. But my life is not hard because of how I was born or how I choose to live my life. It's just rather people's misconceptions about those elements of myself, right? So, yeah. All the points you brought up there, I can't really snap, but if I could, I'd be like, <laughs> <laughs> something I should learn how to do maybe when you all yeah. are the <laughs> next question. I can't really find a way to easily transition. No ways. Um, as a Black Muslim, what advice would you have for other youth with similar identities? Yeah, honestly, that is a very good question because I have not always been comfortable like being a covering Black Muslim woman. I tell people a lot that I only recently started embracing my hijab like five years ago. Um, and, you know, I went to a high school where I was the only one of like very few Black people. I was the only person wearing a hijab. And I remember I was also like a new student, like in January, you know, when you come like a bit later than everybody else, like in the middle of the semester. Um, so when I started the school, I would literally dread going to school every single day. And that's not like from the direct things that people said or anything. It's just like, there's a feeling you feel where like, they're not welcome or like, there's just a space of like awkwardness always, you know, a lot of issues would come around about how like my hijab wasn't the dress code. So getting comfortable in yourself is honestly like recognizing that it might be uncomfortable for a while. I mean, it was very uncomfortable for like the two years that I went to that high school and then going into university, that's like a more diverse space. And I think honestly, what caused me to embrace my identity more was going to university and like joining a club that just promoted black excellence was just amazing to me because 
even though that it wasn't a Muslim focused thing, it was just like, okay, being like, okay, at least this part of my identity, I know that can be recognized. Right. And then with recognizing that like my blackness was kind of accepted in that space, I was able to be like, okay, there's other parts of me. Like I'm a covering Muslim. Like, how do I recognize that? How do I get comfortable with that? How do I get comfortable with how people are going to look at me? And that took growing. I think it takes a lot of growing. And then also the people you surround yourself with is so important. I think I was in a very white space for a long time and I did not realize how uncomfortable it made me until I was in a safer space, right? So when I got in a safer space where there was a lot of people that looked at like me, a lot of people that had been through the same experiences as me, that was when I was like, oh, okay. So it's not normal that <laughs> you dread going to school every day, or it's not normal that you feel uncomfortable in like the clothes that you have to wear for your uniform, right? So it just took like, just kind of surrounding myself with the right people. And then also just kind of staying true to yourself. There's a lot of times that I just contemplated like, okay, should I switch school? Should I take off my hijab? And honestly, every girl's hijab story is very personal to them. Everyone <laughs> goes through it, um, you know, it was very hard because there was times where I was like, okay, I do want to take off my hijab. And then I kind of had to be like, okay, why am I wearing the hijab in the first place? And it is a choice I have to make. And only I can be the person who makes that. And I feel like a lot of people don't know that about Muslim women. Every time you see a Muslim woman, it is their choice as to how they wear their hijab. No one can comment on how a Muslim woman wears her hijab except for that woman. It doesn't matter if you're another hijabi. If you see another hijabi wearing her hijab a different way, it's not your business, right? Everyone has their own experiences and you don't know that. So you confronting a person about, oh, that's not how I would wear my hijab. Or if it's a Muslim man telling a Muslim woman how to wear her hijab, it's on site because <laughs> you don't know what it feels like to have this burden on you, having the weight of the world, doing something as simple as walking down the street and you feel eyes on you. Like Muslim men will never experience that to the same degree. So I think it's a lot of like, don't let people comment on how you, what you choose to wear, how you choose to identify yourself um, with your religion and everything like that. So that just takes time and surround yourself with the right people is what I would say. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I think when you enter like a very like white, non-Muslim area as a Muslim person, mm-hmm. you really find that I think kind of going back to the whole, like, you know, being the ambassador of a black Muslim woman, when everyone asks you questions, it's like that again, but it's like from more of like an angry standpoint, you know, it's mm-hmm. like lots of people saying, oh, well, tell me about this world crisis. You're like, I don't know, but it's more like, so you're forced to wear that. Right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Exactly. And like, yeah, so going back to, like, you just, you know, you surround yourself with the wrong people. And by the wrong people, I don't necessarily even mean, like, bad people. Mm-hmm. Just not the people who you can feel comfortable in your skin around. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think, like, that takes a lot of time. You know, I didn't realize how much of a persona I put on in high school until I graduated. And then I could actually be myself or I could actually be comfortable. And I think having to deal with questions, like, are you oppressed? Like I can only speak for myself in the sense that I know I'm not oppressed because yes, there are Muslim women that are being oppressed, but that is not a sweeping generalization that you can make. There's also white non-Muslim women that are being oppressed. It's like people pick one and then they're like, oh, this is everybody, right? As a black Muslim woman here today, I do not speak for all the other black Muslim women that are going through these, right? Another black Muslim woman living in the same place as I do could be having a completely different experience, right? So it's kind of understanding that you can't just take one person and go along with it. Be like my one black Muslim friend told me this, therefore it applies to everyone. Just kind of taking things and running with it is a very, very dangerous game. 
Absolutely, mm-hmm. yeah. I think like when you're talking about feeling unsafe, like mm-hmm. at the core of it in high school and stuff, I really relate to that. And like, I didn't realize too, until I met people that I did feel safe with and that I could feel like I could be myself fully, how mm-hmm. detrimental to the core of your being that is. And like how, mm-hmm. as you're talking about the like brunt of that labor of educating people and like talking about these really complex and like sometimes it's uprooted from like the history of how these get structurally put in place and Mm -hmm. I think like your words were really powerful there when you were talking about celebrating black excellence I think that is such a resistance to all these systemic and cultural violences that happen so I just wanted to name that thank you and I think like what a lot of people don't realize like what you were saying when is like already going through high school is already so hard and I feel like people don't realize how much of a strain it is to be just okay for example I'm just a 15 year old trying to get through high school and then on top of that you have to deal with all these other things coming from like people that are supposed to support you right coming from like teachers coming from peers um and it's just a really taxing experience so that's why I'm like I feel so much for like high school students or people, even middle school students kind of transitioning. Cause I feel like in university, there's more diversity is like to a certain extent kind of guaranteed, but in high school, it's like, everyone's trying to figure out who they are, but then there's Islamophobia and then there's anti-blackness. But as a 15 year old, for example, I'm not going to be like, oh, this is because of the systemically rooted anti-black, anti-Islamophobic racism, that this is why they're treating me like this, right? You internalize all those emotions as to, oh, these people just don't like me because of who I am, right? So right now I can look back and be like, oh, this was because of this. And this is based on white supremacy, essentially, right? You can lead it up to how many steps to colonialism you'll eventually get there, right? But as a young person like internalizing all these emotions like very very detrimental and like mental health is so so important especially like in the muslim community where we're going through so many things and it's not necessarily spoken about a lot especially as well in the black community it's not spoken about and there's kids just internalizing these emotions and being like this is my fault if everyone else is kind of having an amazing experience in high school people are saying high school is the best years of their life like what's wrong with me right so a thought process could go like that and that's why representation is also important because even in for example the guidance counselor that I had in my high school was white and then we finally got a black psychologist I think in my final semester of high school and even when I was talking to her there was like a disconnect and like oh I don't think she necessarily understands where I'm kind of coming from because I was like I was of a darker skin tone I was also covering so I'm like talking to a black Muslim woman, I feel like would have given me a lot of solace, a lot of comfort during that time. Whereas a teenager, I don't really understand why these systemic issues are affecting me, right? I don't understand how like, it's nothing of my doing, but rather just my lived experience. That comfort was not there. So honestly, we just need more representation and kind of seeking support where that representation is there is very important. Yeah. That makes me think of the responsibility for care of Mm -hmm. like institutions and like 
these teachers who are grown adults and should know these things and should be critical of what they are learning and how they are caring for these students. Um, and I think like when we think of youth, it gets lumped into this like big category. And then we forget that like high school students, they're still like figuring themselves out and like still at my age, I'm still figuring myself out and like yeah. our brains aren't fully developed. And sometimes we don't realize that it's not us. It's like the system that is messed up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like all through high school, I had a nickname. Um, everyone called me G. Some of my friends do still refer to me as G and that's fine. Um, but I never sat with the fact that like, why did I have a nickname? Because I was just scared that like, oh, if my name is too hard for people to pronounce, I just won't make friends. Right. Or um, I just want to save everybody the embarrassment for when the substitute teacher is going to pause at my name and just kind of look at it for a very long time. And, you know, I remember my dad even telling me when I first started going by my nickname at like 13, being like, okay, why? Your name is literally fine. Why does everyone need to call you G? But I used to just be like, oh, it's just like, this is how friends show appreciation. We give each other nicknames. And it went all the way until I was like 18. Everyone just calling me G until I went to university. I was like, I would literally introduce myself as if my name was G. And then in university, I was like, okay, let me just try and introduce myself by my actual name. And I'm like, if, people try, you can get my name. If you take the two seconds to be like, am I saying it right? And even if you are not saying it right, if you're putting the effort to be like, okay, let's just talk for like two seconds and tell me if I'm not saying your name right. So that's like something that needs to be instilled in all of us that like, you need to just take the two seconds to learn people's name because it's such a big part of like our identity that is often overlooked, right? So me going by G for so long, I didn't kind of stick to my true nature and kind of going with my name because I I wasn't having a nickname because I thought it was cute. I was having a nickname because I was like, oh, there's just all these issues when it comes to just saying my name properly. Because you felt there was a necessity because yeah, necessity made up by the colonizer. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Is there any other thoughts you'd like to share or something you missed that, you know, you just like to talk about, expand on? Um, Yeah, I just feel like the takeaway of this is just to support Black Muslim women. If you know a Black Muslim woman, honestly, check in with her. Mental health is often neglected. I'm trying to make an effort to check in with my Black Muslim friends. And then also, I'm not asking you to go to the government doors knocking. I'm asking you to take the time and be like, okay, if I'm watching a TV show and I'm seeing this stuff about Muslims. Let me deconstruct that. Let me try and figure out why every time I see a terrorist on TV, they're from the Middle East or whatever they deem as the Middle East. So kind of taking the time to educate yourself in these simple, simple ways, it goes a long way. The big change happens because a lot of little steps were taken because people ask me all the time, they're like, okay, what, what do Black Muslim women want? And I think I'm like, they want to be heard. They want to know that their experiences are valid. So just making sure you're listening to Black Muslim women, uplifting the Muslim community in general is just a very big and important thing. Absolutely. Yeah, 100% again. Thank you so much for sharing everything with us tonight. Of course. Thank you so much, Ganyat. Um Is there anything you would like to plug coming to the end of this convo? Um, Yes, I would like to promote the Black Inclusion Association, which is a nonprofit that I co-founded and I'm currently the president of that we're working to promote Black inclusion in Albertan society, as well as promoting Black excellence. So we have 
post-secondary application bursary that's coming out in the next couple of weeks, hopefully, um, to help support Black high school students to apply for university. I feel like it's often neglected that, that there is a financial barrier just for the application process itself. So that's something that we're working on. And then as well as if you wanna just support Black people, support Black organizations, I recommend Platform CA on Instagram. They're also doing very good, amazing work and just making sure you support Black and local. Amazing. Thank you for plugging those. Big thanks to Ganya for sharing her lived experiences as a Black Muslim woman in Alberta in navigating her identity and role in community activism. You can follow Ganya and the Black Inclusion Association on Instagram. Find those links in the description. To view full transcripts of this interview, visit our website at jhcenter.org slash rootsforchange. Thank you to the John Humphrey Center for Peace and Human Rights and our funders, the Edmonton Community Foundation, who made this podcast possible. Be sure to tune in to CJSR 88.5 FM to also listen to our podcast on the radio. And be sure to follow us on our Instagram at rootsforchange.jhc to find teasers of the next episode. In the meantime, We hope this conversation sparks your own reflection and action in what it means to show up for Black Muslim women in our communities.